I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to look at the first part of this chapter today, verses 1 through 22. And as we do, we really see here the, the ripple effects of David's sin and how his sin now has affected his family. It's a reminder to us of a saying that I've heard many people say, and I've shared with you many times, that sin always costs us more than we ever intended to pay, and it takes us farther than we ever thought we would go. And we have in front of us in God's Word, Exhibit A, in King David. A lustful glance from a rooftop has now led him down a road of devastation. And it literally is going to cost him everything. But God tells David in response to his sin, in 2 Samuel 12, 10 and 11, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And in today's text, we see that judgment on David's family. We see why the sword will not depart from his house, especially between two of his sons. How eventually this chapter will end with one son killing the other son. And we see the reason why as we see the wickedness that takes place in the life of his son, Amnon. And so, as we read this passage, I pray that we would be mindful and be sober. And that we might understand rightly where sin takes us. That God would bring conviction in all of our lives. If there is sin, if we are walking down that path, that, that we would repent today and not go down the same path that we see David's family going down here. And so with that introduction, we're going to look at this passage today, and I'll invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word if you're able to, as I read for us, 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister, whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnon, David's son, loved her. And Abnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please tell my sister Tamar, Come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was laying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. 
And Tamar took the cakes that she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. She said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister, for he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. If you would pray with me. Father, there is a great reminder in this passage before us of where sin takes us, of the darkness of wickedness. And I pray, Lord, even as we consider the words that were just read, that you would help us to detest sin. That you would help us to see the darkness of sin. That you would help us to stop entertaining ourselves with sin. That you would help us to call sin, sin. And to realize where it takes us. That we might repent and flee to the cross of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you found yourself in a conversation at times with someone who does not believe this is a holy book, that does not believe this is the Word of God. I've been challenged a number of times over the years in ministry as I've talked to people about the gospel of Jesus by those who say, well, well the Bible's not reliable, the Bible's not really inspired, the Bible is just a, a book written by men. It's a man-made story that seeks to convince people to follow them and their religion. My response to the line of argument often is, then explain to me why we have passages like 2 Samuel 13. Explain to me why King David, a man after God's own heart, the one who's in a covenant relationship with God, the one from whom 
eventually will come our Messiah who would sit on the throne. Explain to me why, if this is a man-made book, someone would come up with a story like this in order for us to trust in a Messiah that comes from this family tree. This passage does not shine a positive light on King David's family. And as a result, then, it doesn't shine a positive light on the lineage of Jesus. I mean, you consider Matthew's gospel and how it begins with the statement that Jesus is the son of David. How often throughout the gospels, Jesus is referred to in that very way as the son of David. If this is a man-made book and a man-made religion, then why in the world will we have passages like 2 Samuel 13? No, if this was a man-made book, a man-made religion, human writers would have suppressed something like this. They would have looked over something like this. They wouldn't have included a story like this. Much like writers today will often leave out details about people's lives that they want to present in the most positive light to us. The only reason that 2 Samuel 13 is included in the Word of God is because it is the Word of God. It's because the God of all things has found it right and good that we might see where sin takes us. See, the Scripture says of itself that all Scripture is breathed out by God and all of it then is profitable for teaching. Even passages like 2 Samuel 13 that are so dark and so wicked that it's awkward to stand here and read them and it's awkward to sit there and hear it. And yet, this is a profitable word for us today. And so I want us to consider that. How can we profit from this passage? How can we grow in righteousness from this historical story in considering it? Well, I'll give you three ways I think it can profit us. In the way of reminders, the first one is this. A reminder that we should abhor the sinfulness of sin. That, that, that word abhor means we should detest, we should loathe, we should despise we, we should regard this with disgust this passage is a shocking reminder to us of how sinful sin can be and how much we should detest it and we need that reminder today friends because far too often we sit in our homes and we turn on our televisions and we are entertained by the sinfulness of sin Far too often in our conversations with one another, we, we find humor in the sinfulness of sin. And far too often in our culture today, we, we have become numb and callous to the sinfulness of sin. As we look at sin growing rampantly around us, as we look at, at sinful lifestyles and sinful actions being endorsed and embraced sadly by many in the church. We, we have lost something. It's as if we just expect it. It doesn't shock us anymore. And friends, it should. And I believe in part one of the reasons God has given us a passage like this is, is to maybe introduce a little bit of that shock back into our system. That, that we might see and detest and loathe where sin takes us. And we see where it takes us as we consider where it takes Amnon. The eldest son of David, the, the next in line to the throne, the man who would be king. 
It cost him everything. And friends, it does the same to us. Now, I'm not going to go through every detail of this passage. It was enough just to read it. But, but I do want us to take a moment to consider what's taking place here. Well, we begin the passage by saying that Amnon, he, he's infatuated with Tamar. Now, the Scripture uses the word love, but we can clearly see as we walk through this passage that this is lust, this is desire. That there's no romantic intention here. What Amnon wanted was strictly forbidden in the word of God because Tamar was his half-sister. But he had no regard for the law of God. He simply wanted to satisfy his desires. And so in comes his cousin Jonadab who should have been one in his life to give him wise counsel, but he doesn't. He gives him unwise and wicked counsel. The scripture describes him as a very crafty man. As one commentator I read this week noted, Jonadab was a man with skill but no scruple, wisdom without ethics, insight without integrity. And he used this craft and this skill to, to hatch this scheme through which Amnon could satisfy his desire no matter what the cost and no matter how much it would violate the Word of God. So Amnon enacts Jonadab's plan. He pretends to be sick. His father checks on him and he asks for Tamar. This scheme was just to get Tamar in his presence in his home. And then he, he violates his sister. He brings her into his home. His intentions become clear. She pleads with him not to act on his desires. In fact, notice in verse 12, she, she begs him. Do not do this outrageous thing. She notes that if he does it, he'll be like one of the outrageous fools of Israel. Now that term outrageous, that, that's not a real shocking term to us. In fact, we, we tend to use it at times in kind of a positive light. You know, that was just something outrageous. Something surprising, something even marvelous. But that's not the context here at all. And in fact, the, the Hebrew language here translates much stronger than the words in front of us. Tamar is saying to her brother that if, that if he acts on his desires, if he does this thing, he is godless. He has no God. He has no regard for the things of God. He's wicked. He's foolish. His desires and the thought, even the thought of acting on them, are an abomination before God. That's what his sister is saying to him. She understands the sinfulness of his intention. And she rightly understands what God's word forbids. But he seems to have no regard for God's word. And we might pause to consider why. Why? Why would the eldest son of King David, a man after God's own heart, have no regard for the word of God? Why would the next in line to the throne seem to have no care about sin and where sin could take him? Why would that be? How could that be? I mean, after all, consider the words that David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Consider what he says in Psalm 19. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is 
pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter almost than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And keeping them, there's great reward. How could King David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, write and believe these things, and yet have a son who's godless, who has no regard for the things that his father would write? I can't help but wonder how much of this blame lays at David's feet. I mean, maybe David had taught in word, but we know he hadn't taught him this in action. I mean, it's very clear as you read through the entirety of chapter 13 that the sin that's being played out in the lives of his son is a reflection of the sin that's already played out in his own life. I mean, there David was on the rooftop looking down and he lusted after Bathsheba. And yes, the Scripture gives us more details about what that was like in Amnon's life, but, but I think it's a mirror image of what his father experienced. And like his father, he would not be satisfied unless he pursued his desires. I can't help but wonder how differently all this would have played out. Had David on that rooftop taken that glance and immediately turned and repented, and gone before God and confessed his sin. And then gone to his son's home and gone to him and said, Listen, Amnon, you're going to be the king one day and you need to understand something. A sinful glance will take you down a path you don't want to go. Let me tell you what I just experienced. Let me tell you what I almost just did. But son, I turned and repented and you're going to have to do that every day of your life. To be the king that God would have you be. I mean imagine the difference in David's family tree. Had he turned and repented. Rather than pursued his sin. And yes we do see and we talked about this before. How, how after his sin David is confronted and David repents. But, but the consequences of his sin remain. As one author noted, it's kind of like when you throw a stone into a pond. You can retrieve that stone from the pond, but you can't retrieve those ripple effects that keep rolling. And that's how repentance is. David has repented. The stone has been retrieved, but the ripple continues. And we see it now in the life of his son. David never had that conversation. At least, not that we see in the Scripture. David pursued his sin... And now we see his son very much following in his father's footsteps. It may have been that David had given Amnon instruction in the ways of the Lord and he had just refused that instruction. Or it may have been that David failed him as a father to teach him these things. Either way, David's sin had a great impact on his son. And we see his son's sin is very much a reflection of the father's sin. It's wicked and it's awful. And it reminds us of the sinfulness of sin. 
It also reminds us in those ripples of, of how much our sin affects everyone and everything around us. I remember reading about the largest wildfire in North American history. It took place in 1950. There were surveyors for an oil company in British Columbia. And as they were surveying, there were insects that were swarming around their horses. And so in order to keep the insects away, they, they started a small fire so that the smoke would drive away these insects around their horses. But that small fire quickly spread. It spread throughout British Columbia and Alberta. It spread for months. And by the time it was finally extinguished, it had destroyed three and a half million acres. That the smoke plume from this wildfire over British Columbia was seen as far away as Europe. All from one flame that spread out of control. Friends, that, that's a picture of what sin does. That, that's a picture of what happens here in 2 Samuel to David and his family. David on a rooftop lights a small ember of lust and he does not extinguish it. He thinks he can control it. He thinks he can conceal it. He thinks he can keep it hidden, but he can't. And it grows and it grows. And he keeps trying to put it out with deceit and deception and murder. But it grows and it grows and it grows. And now look where it goes. To his children, his children's home, and it wreaks havoc on their lives. And it reminds us of the sinfulness of sin. It reminds us we should detest sin and where it takes us. And to do that, point two, we need to recognize the deceitfulness of sin. We need to recognize the deceitfulness of sin. James reminds us in James 1 verses 14 and 15 that each person, each of us, is tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. And when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin never brings forth life. <laughs> Sin never delivers on the joy it promises. No, it brings death and it brings devastation. And we see that here in Amnon as we notice the progression of his sin. He was lured and enticed by the beauty of his sister. Uh, again, the scripture says he loved her, but this was no romantic love. This was no romantic pursuit. And he didn't want to go on long walks with Tamar. He didn't want to have long dinner conversations with her. He didn't want to know her heart, her desires. He had no concern about her future. In fact, he is going to be responsible for destroying her future. All to satisfy his desires. This was no love. This was lust. And that desire gives birth to sin. He violates her sister, and the Scripture tells us he, he, he throws her out. And then notice in verse 15, it says he hated her with a very great hatred. He tells his servant, put this woman out of my presence. And the Hebrew language, actually the word for woman is not included. What he actually said was more along the lines of, get it away from me. He doesn't even regard her as human. He, he looks at her like 
trash. That, that's how far his sin takes him. It doesn't satisfy him. It doesn't bring him joy. Now he just he hates her. That, that sin as it grows, as it comes to fruition, we see then how, how it leads to death. Very much so in Amnon's life. He's not going to make it out of this chapter alive. His sinful actions will directly result in him being killed. Sin leads to death. I mean, the whole episode is just sad. Especially when we consider all, all that Amnon lost in his sinful desires and in pursuing them. He's, he's David's oldest son. You know, when we're first introduced to Amnon as the eldest son of David, we can't help but recall God's word to David back in chapter 7 where he said this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, we know this side of things that that prophetically is pointing towards Jesus, but in the context, in the time, as David hears God saying that, he likely is thinking, this will be my firstborn. My firstborn is going to sit on the throne. My firstborn is going to inherit the kingdom. Amnon was obviously the one next in line to the throne. He was being prepared to be the king. And he's not going to make it out of this chapter alive. This is where sin takes you to the bottom, to the pit. A small fire burns out of control and it destroys everything in its path. It might start small in a seemingly insignificant way. A glance. A thought. An inappropriate comment. A joke that crosses a line feeding anger, feeding distrust, withholding forgiveness. And it might seem at the time to be so small and so insignificant that every day that we don't repent, we're just fanning the flame. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows until it consumes us and everything around us. And it ends in ruin. Well, we need to recognize this path, friends. It is the path that is repeated time and time again in God's Word that we might recognize it and see it and stop it and repent of it. We cannot entertain sin. It will deceive us. It always does. When our eyes are open to that, then we can clearly see our need for a Savior. Which brings us to our third and final point here. We need a Savior to deliver us from sin. We need a Savior for deliverance from sin. The effects of Amnon's sin here are devastating. Verse 20 tells us of the devastation in Tamar's life. So Tamar lived a desolate woman. In her father Absalom's house. I mean, you, you compare that with how we're first introduced to her as this, this woman of great beauty. Of uh, this, this prize in the kingdom. 
how every young man who might even have the opportunity to marry into the household of the king, his eyes would have gazed on Tamar. At every ceremonial event, there she would have been ordained in splendor. So the beautiful daughter of the king. And now, a desolate woman. Tucked away in her brother's house. Out of the sight of people. Forgotten, it would seem, by many. What became of her through these violent events that were unleashed, we don't know. We don't know anything else about her future because there's no other recording of her. It's as if she just kind of vanishes from the pages of Scripture. But what we know is this. Nobody stands up for her. Nobody in this passage fights for justice. That the wickedness that happens to her is magnified in the lack of concern that her father and her brother seem to have for her when they find out what's happened. I mean, Absalom learns of it, and, and there will be a hatred that grows in, her heart, in his heart, but there's not a, a desire for biblical justice there. He just wants revenge. He hates his brother. Perhaps before this, he already hated his brother. Perhaps he looked to Amnon and all he wanted was his seat at the table. Perhaps he just wanted to be king. That there's no righteousness in the actions that unfold towards the end of this chapter. That there's no justice brought for Tamar. No, he seems to be satisfying his own interests. He's not fighting for his sister. Hey, he just tucks her away in his house. And essentially, in this passage, he tells her to be quiet. But her dad, King David, the, the man who when he learns of a rich man stealing a poor man's sheep for which the law would require him to pay back four times what he stole, this king who offers that judgment hears about his daughter's situation, hears about what has happened to her. And he does nothing. I mean, the Scripture tells us he's angry, but it's anger without action. It would seem that David cared more about a poor man's sheep than he cared about his own daughter. He doesn't do anything. Now, Perhaps David in this moment thinks, who am I to say anything? <laughs> Perhaps here he is haunted by the reality of his own sin. Perhaps he is very aware now that his son has just followed in his footsteps. Perhaps this just reintroduces the shame of his sin. And he thinks, who am I to say anything? And yet he should have said something. He was the king. And he was Tamar's father. And no matter what sin he had committed in the past, he should have confronted his son. He should have called out his sin. He should have demanded repentance and restoration. He should have brought justice for Tamar. But he didn't. He failed. 
there's no happy ending here. That there's no repentance. There's no restoration. That there's no salvation for anyone. God is not even mentioned in this passage apart from Tamar telling her brother that his actions would be godless. The whole sad affair should leave us wanting for something more. We, we should want in reading this for Amnon to be punished. We, we should want Tamar to be rescued and restored. We, we should want David to act like the king that God has called him to be. And I think perhaps that's the whole point. And perhaps that's why God has included this in the biblical narrative. That we might want for something more. For justice. That our hearts might long for repentance. And mercy. And forgiveness. And for restoration. That, that we might long for the day when a young woman is no longer violated and abused, that we might long for a day when, when wrongs don't just continue. We should long for the day when sin doesn't go unchecked and unpunished. We should long for the day when awful events like what takes place in 2 Samuel 13 no longer take place. And perhaps the reason God has put this before us today is that we might long for that day and see how that day comes to fruition in and through our Lord Jesus. There's no mention of God in this passage, but this is the Word of God and it points us to the Gospel of Jesus. It points us to the reality of our sin and our desperate need for salvation. We're reminded here that David failed. And David's son inherits his father's flaws and follows in his footsteps. And he fails too. But friends, a greater son of David will come and does come and has come. And that son Jesus, he, he never fails. <laughs> he never sins. He, he brings justice and he brings peace. He covers the shame of the abused. He forgives the iniquity of their repentance. He promises a kingdom where wickedness will be no more. Reading passages like this expose the sinfulness of sin and should send us running to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's only there that we find justice and peace and mercy and grace and forgiveness. It's only there that we find it. hope for the abused and the mistreated. It's only there that we find rest for the beaten down and exhausted. It's only there that we can find hope. And I pray that's where our hope will rest today. If you would stand together and pray with me for that very thing. Father, we are reminded as we read these words today of that great truth we've often sang, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, but in righteousness. That our, our hope must rest in Jesus. 
Our hope doesn't rest in David. Our hope doesn't rest in the kings of this world. Our hope doesn't rest in ourselves. Our hope doesn't rest in one another. Our hope has to rest in Christ. And I pray that it would. I pray today, Lord, that you might, through the power of your Spirit, help us to see the depths of our own sin and our need for repentance. I pray if there are small embers burning in our lives right now, that we would be quick to extinguish them and repent. That we would stop, try, stop trying to hide and cover our sin. I pray, God, that you would give us hope today in the midst of a passage that seems rather hopeless but in the midst of your word that gives us great hope because our hope rests in Christ. I pray, God, that you would give us a longing for the kingdom today, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends and guests, we're going to respond now to God's word by singing. I will glory in my Redeemer. And as we sing, we invite you to respond primarily through worship and worshiping the great God who has given us the gospel of Jesus, the great God who rescues and who saves. And as we sing and as we worship, we invite you to respond. You may need just in this moment to take time to pray, to repent. It may be that God's leading you to come and pray with me or have me pray for you. Perhaps he's leading you to come and confess Christ as Lord and respond to the gospel of Jesus to receive that forgiveness that he offers. To follow through in obedience and baptism to, to take the next step in joining this church family. And we invite you to, to consider in this moment what God has said in His Word and how you and I need to respond to this Word. And that's why we offer this time now, this time of response. So let's all respond together as we sing, I will glory in my redeemer.